0: У році російська агресія розпочалась саме з захоплення Криму. Логічно, що звільненням Криму ми поставимо історичну крапку на будь-яких намаганнях Росії ламати життя українцям та усім народам Європи, Азії, на підкорення, яких Кремль
1: As Ukraine continues to beat back Russian forces in its eastern Donbass region and prepares for a spring offensive to liberate more territory, there's another issue lurking just below the surface. Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky has pointedly defined victory in this war as nothing short of driving all Russian troops from all Ukrainian territory. And that means liberating not just the Donbass, but also Crimea, which Russia seized in 2014. So how realistic is the Ukrainian liberation of Crimea, and what might that look like? Well, we got just a guest to address these questions today, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams-Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas R. McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from beautiful Beaufort, South Carolina, is retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of u.s army europe these days ben is a senior advisor at human rights first welcome back to the vertical ben good to see you thank you for the privilege Thanks, thanks for joining us, and also joining us from the uber hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey is also the author of a recently published article in Politico titled "Here's How Ukraine Can Retake Crimea," which we'll be discussing today. Welcome back to the virtual, Casey. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Brian. Yeah, great to have you. So in the first half of the program, I wanted to focus on the military aspect, the feasibility of Ukraine liberating Crimea. In the second half, we can focus on the politics and how the conventional wisdom on this issue seems to be changing. And Casey, we'll put a l- link to your excellent article in the show notes so our readers can, our listeners can read it. But to get us rolling, just spell out for our listeners the basic Cliff Notes version of your argument How does Ukraine liberate Crimea? And then we'll get sure, Ben to go absolutely. into the details.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and certainly I'm going to defer to General Hodges throughout this entire conversation on some of the specifics that we're talking about. And I should say General Hodges was also kind enough to speak with me for that article, so hopefully folks will uh, get something out of it. You know, Brian, it has been a, a remarkable year. It's been a year unlike any other. If you and I were talking just this time last year, I don't think any of us would be having a discussion about how, you, uh, how Ukraine can uh, and should retake Crimea, the Crimean, Crimean Peninsula, uh, Peninsula, especially militarily. Uh, You know, Looking at this, there seem to be two primary potential approaches. We have the land-based approach, obviously the narrow spit, the narrow isthmus of potential Ukrainian troops coming down, or a potential amphibious and air power assault on the peninsula itself. And again, I'll let General Hodges talk about some of the specifics there. But to back up a second, the fact that we're already having this conversation as we look into the second year moving forward is a testament not only to how far we've come as the broader West itself in terms of supporting Ukraine, but especially the Ukrainian troops, especially the Ukrainian forces themselves to even put this on the table as a potentiality and, frankly, as a necessity moving forward. You know, When we're talking about Crimea, this isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. It's probably not going to happen next month. We need to remember that if any assault does come on the Crimean Peninsula, it will be when the Russians are already on their back feet. It'll be something similar to what we saw out of Kherson, something similar to what we saw out of Kharkiv. The Russian troops will be pushed back already. They'll be on their back feet, which is when the Ukrainians are going to push into the peninsula
1: itself. Yeah, and this is uh, you, you said the word necessity, and this is a, one of the big things that kind of jumped out at me from your piece. And I want to dive into this a little bit later is that maybe leaving Russia and Crimea and getting, getting, getting them out of every other part of Ukraine is a security risk, uh, not just for, for Ukraine, but for Europe as well. Ben, as Casey said, you were one of the military experts he cited for this article. And from a strict kind of military, strategic, tactical, and from your standpoint, most importantly, logistical standpoint, what would a Ukrainian liberation of Crimea look like? What would have to happen first? Do you, do, you, do you agree with the former Ukrainian defense minister, Andrei Zagorodnyuk that before Crimea can be liberated, Russia first needs to be driven out of mainland Ukraine?
0: Actually, this may be the only time that I ever disagreed with Andrei. Um, the operational art, is all about identifying the decisive terrain and then focusing your effort to secure or seize that decisive terrain, which means you take risk elsewhere. You could kill every Russian soldier in Donbass, um, every one of them around Bakhmut, all these places. That would not change the outcome of this war. The Russians would just continue to recede that. You liberate Crimea, that changes everything. So Crimea is the decisive terrain. It's not some appendage of Ukraine that also should be liberated. It is decisive because Ukraine will never be safe or secure, uh, nor will they ever be able to rebuild their economy as long as Russia occupies Crimea. It'll it'll forever block ships coming in and out of Azov Sea, which means that Mariupol and Berdansk, uh which are uh, Ukrainian seaports number two and three in terms of priority, uh, they'll never be able to to do anything. And of course, as long as the Black Sea Fleet can operate out of Sevastopol, Odessa will always be uh, threatened uh, or potentially blockaded by the Black Sea Fleet. And then Crimea is a launching pad for drones, for Air Force, and of course for the Navy. So the idea that somehow Ukraine would ever be safe or secure with Russia occupying Crimea is nonsense. And, And we should stop pressing Ukraine to even consider doing that. And they won't. Now... Uh, what? how did they do this? Uh, you know, of course, if, you're, if you care about Ukraine, you care about Crimea, you're already familiar with the map, and you recognize exactly as Casey said. I mean, there's only a couple of ways to get to Crimea that connect it to Russia. One is the famous Kerch Bridge, which has already been severely damaged, and I'm pretty sure the Ukrainians will revisit that bridge again in the coming months. Uh, the other way is the so-called land bridge, that runs from Rostov down through Mariupol to Melitopol and then across the uh, across into Crimea. So you think about what we're trying to do is not necessarily a land assault but first make it untenable for the Russians, make it so that they cannot stay there. That means first isolate it using long-range precision weapons to prevent them ever repairing the Kerch bridge and begin to disrupt or interdict traffic coming down the land bridge. And the Ukrainians, of course, are already hitting targets in and around Melitopol. Uh, so you isolate it. And then I think there will be a land uh, counter, uh, let's call it a Ukrainian uh, offensive that will take place probably, I think, June. That's when all the conditions will be set. They'll have enough force. The ground will be right. They'll have built up logistics. They'll have been setting the conditions. And then this this uh, armored force will break, once and for all, this land bridge, probably by aiming somewhere between Melitopol and Mariupol. And then you can bring up all your HIMARS and, and other weapons, and then you begin to hit Sevastopol, Shaki, Jankoi, all the places in Crimea where the Russians are operating. So you hit those things and eventually the Russians they can't stay there so the key of course is us providing the long-range weapons they'll need to do that
1: so the first if I'm hearing you correctly the first thing that needs to happen is you need to take out that Kerch Bridge and then a drive towards Melitopol or somewhere in between Melitopol and Mediupol Is that am I hearing you correctly there The the effect
0: the effect you want to achieve first is the isolation of Crimean Peninsula so uh, make sure they can never repair that Kerch bridge, and make sure they cannot use the land bridge. And then, and then, of course, I mean this is medieval warfare, mm-hmm. or you could say Vauban siege warfare, where you you bring up capability in order to get your better your uh, artillery, then it can begin to range the critical targets inside Crimea. Now, yeah, Casey, Ray, go ahead, Casey. Well, okay, I was gonna go say
2: this gets to one of the one of the broader conversations obviously about the the, the state and the direction of the war movement for the notions of quality versus quantity. Obviously we've seen what's been taking place in Bakhmut, human wave after human wave after human wave, really highlighting the reality of that strategy on the Russian side, using mass to attempt to overwhelm the Ukrainian forces. And I think one of the things that was so that that General Hodges made so clear is that, yes, that is a reality and that is a strategy, but it's certainly been failing time and again in parts of eastern Ukraine, and there are elements that we can extract from those, those lessons of what we see in eastern Ukraine that lead us to think, that lead us to believe. Uh, long-range precision strikes can help overwhelm that uh, mass factor that the Russians have, certainly in Crimea in this case. And I remember, General Hodges, when you and I were speaking about this just a few weeks ago, the notion of Ukrainian targeting, again, with long-range precision strikes, whether it's HIMARS or even ATAKOMs, to overcome that advantage that the Russians still have in terms of numerical superiority, targeting the logistics hubs, targeting those regional headquarters in Crimea to soften it up, to isolate it, can overcome the numerical disadvantage that the Ukrainians still
1: Now, Casey, so you wrote about another scenario. You wrote about the one that, that, that Ben outlines here, the drive t- towards Melitopol, blowing, taking out the Kerch Bridge and isolating Kremlin. You also talked about an amphibious uh, assault as well. Is that mutually exclusive to this or is this in combination with this? And Ben, I want to get you to weigh in on that as well.
2: Well, certainly, again, I'll defer to General Hodges in terms of the broader actual tactical advantages or disadvantages one has or the other. But my understanding is that those can exist in confluence if the resources are actually there. Now, again, one of the things that I was citing was retired Australian General Mick Ryan, who, Brand, you may know. He has been one, yeah. one of the more popular commentators on the war itself, and he was outlining this strategy. And I'll just read his quote. "You know, This would entail a large-scale air, sea, and land, so combined arms – Operation uh, on several axes. Uh, it would be a robust air and sea campaign to the tune of 100,000 or so Ukrainian troops. That would allow them to launch that campaign uh, in terms of an amphibious assault to recapture Crimea. I don't see why that would necessarily be mutually exclusive to, uh, you know, severing the land bridge, pushing forward, bringing forward the long-range precision strikes. But it is a matter of resourcing. It is a matter of supply. Already, we're seeing the, um, you know, the ammunition diet that the uh, Ukrainians uh, have to go on because of the lack of actual shells i again i'm not an expert on the the state of the ukrainian navy in and of itself my understanding is that we need significant increased capacity in terms yep. of any kind of amphibious vehicles or capacities uh therein to uh, to to make this a reality not that it can't happen it's just there needs to be significant steps between here and now to actually make it so uh make them able to do so
1: got it right and ben, ben d- does ukraine have the assets to pull something like this off and they don't have much of a navy they don't have much in terms of air power you're, you're muted Ben. sorry i did that because uh where I'm at in Buford
0: is close to the uh, Buford Marine Corps Air Station, and they have F-35s taken off for training here, and it's so loud, and I was trying to...
1: <laughs> that would be
0: pretty good ambient
1: sound for the podcast, actually.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Uh, so there, the Ukrainians do not have enough long-range precision weapons uh, to do this yet. Um, and so we have to go back to what is the first thing that needs to be done. The first thing that needs to be done is that the U.S. government needs to say... Our objective is for Ukraine to win, okay? And when the U.S. government says we want Ukraine to win, then all these excuses about, oh, we don't have enough of these or, you know, this tank burns too much fuel, all those excuses fall away. But so far, the, the administration, despite all the many good things it's done, has not been able to bring themselves to say we want Ukraine to win. And I know a little bit later we're going to talk about the politics, but that's that's going to be the key to to releasing what's needed. If the Ukrainians had Atakums right now, Mm -hmm. the Black Sea Fleet would not be able to exist in Sevastopol. It's exactly 300 kilometers uh, straight-line distance from Odessa to Sevastopol. That's the range of an Atakums, the uh, published range. So if they already had Atakums, the Black Sea Fleet would, would be gone. They would have to have repositioned somewhere else. They could not use Sevastopol, and that would make it much more difficult for them to disrupt Odessa, to launch their caliber missiles against uh, Ukrainian apartment buildings, and so on. Uh, The administration has finally agreed to provide the ground launch small diameter bombs, which are 150 kilometers, but the sourcing solution is, as they come off the factory, Uh, assembly line, well, that's that's months from now, Uh, Gray Eagle drone, 25 hours uh, loiter time. That, that would work wonders on uh, many of these targets, but the administration is not yet willing to do that, and they're not yet willing to release a techums. Secure, General Cavoli, um, recently said, precision can defeat mass. And of course, what he's talking about is the only advantage the Russians have is mass infantry. And mass infantry, to be effective, has to have mass artillery. And for mass artillery to be effective, it has to have headquarters, ammunition, and transport. So if you give the Ukrainians the range, the capabilities to reach where the headquarters are and the ammunition dumps are and the critical transportation nodes, then they completely neutralize the only advantage that the Russians have. So the key for all of this is long range, uh, precision weapons. If we did this, if we got serious, like we want Ukraine to win, Crimea could be liberated by the end of this summer. You don't, you're not going to need a hundred thousand troops. If you have enough long range precision weapons to force the Navy to leave, to force the air force to leave and to wreck their, uh, big logistics hub in
1: Genkoyd. So you're so if you were like to compile the wish list, if we were to put together a shopping list for Ukraine to take back Crimea by the end of the summer, on that list would, all, would obviously be long-range precision weapons like attackums. What about F-16s? What else would be on the list?
0: Yeah, I, I think we should have started training Ukrainian pilots on the F-16 months ago, even before we made a decision to provide F-16s. You know, start training so that when they finally go through the long-tortured process— to decide okay we're going to provide x they're trained and ready to go you get instant impact of the political decision there's no lag time instead what we're doing now we dick around with the uh, make the decision okay we'll do it now let's start training and the ukrainians we we continue to underestimate their ability to rapidly learn how to use new things it's driving me crazy
1: yeah, no, they seem to be learning things in weeks that often take months, if not years, for others to learn, and this is something that I think is one of the big takeaways of this this war. Casey, did you have something to add there? I want to come to you with something, but—
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, again, if if this was two months, three months into the war, yeah, that would be a realization. We'd still need to be talking about. Look, we're a year into this, and this is a story, a lesson that we have seen time and time and time again. I do not know what we are waiting for. I do not know why we still have the assumption that the Ukrainians can't get up to speed for some of these technologies, some of these assets. Uh, why it isn't in our best interest to make that the reality on the ground, whether it's in Crimea or elsewhere. I mean, again, it is it's 12 months we've been talking about this. 12 months we've been watching this. I have no doubt this is going to continue into. The future.
1: Yeah, I wanted to go back to to former Ukrainian defense minister Andriy Zagorodnyuk's comments and one of the few times that Ben actually disagreed with uh, with our with our mutual friend Andriy. Um he seems to think it you got to do Donbass first. Um the consensus here on this show right now seems to be that you can do Crimea before you do Donbass. What is the logic? What is the reasoning? behind the assumption that you have to do Donbass first. And admittedly, that's how I had been thinking of it until now, to be honest. Go ahead, Casey. Or did...
2: Well, I was going to say, obviously, I don't want to speak for the former uh, uh, defense minister, but my understanding is that that was part and parcel of what I mentioned earlier in the sense that it will be when we see the assault on Crimea itself, presumably, uh, in whether it's this year or next year, uh, hopefully, ideally, by the end of the summer, uh, that will be when the Russians have already begun rolling back in terms of their positioning, in terms of their lines or entrenchments in eastern Ukraine, uh, in southeastern Ukraine. They will already, again, be on their back foot. The Ukrainians will be pushing and pressing their advantage around the country across eastern across southeastern ukraine across all of those recent uh, recently supposedly annexed uh, uh provinces themselves uh as they push toward crimea itself so again it's certainly possible it's certainly you know the potential of them reclaiming every single square foot of occupied land whether it's in dnr lnr or elsewhere i, I don't necessarily know why bakhmut has to be retaken in order for an assault on crimea to take
0: place but again i'll defer to general hodges on that
1: yeah yeah, yeah go there
0: you're exactly right casey uh, i mean think about um Uh, the World War II island-hopping campaign in the Pacific, MacArthur realized they did not have to capture every island that was occupied by the Japanese. The only islands that mattered were the ones that were necessary to advance bomber bases to prepare for the next invasion. And so he left all these, you know, so so his whole concept was bypass resistance that doesn't really matter. And so... Uh, what Casey said is exactly right. You don't have to uh, kill all the Russians around Bakhmut in order to get long-range precision weapons to start hitting the the key targets on the Crimean Peninsula. At some point, of course, you will need to have to attack uh, to to break this land bridge and to create an opportunity to bring up all of your other uh, shorter-range weapons so that they pe- they can begin to pound the uh, airfields and seaports and logistics sites on the Crimean Peninsula. But you don't have to do anything in Bakhmut to do that. And the Russians, of course, have demonstrated that they have no breakthrough capability. It's not like there's an armored corps lurking in the forest somewhere that's going to start racing towards Kharkiv or or Kiev. It's it's just not there. And so uh, while it sucks to be a Ukrainian soldier in Bakhmut right now, they are performing an extremely important function that doctrinally we would call economy of force. They've got the Ukrainians are putting there what they have to to continue to hold up Russian forces, but they don't need to drive them back. It, it, it absolutely does not matter compared to the outcome of liberating Crimea. And in fact, I will tell you, I believe that once Crimea is liberated, there's a lot less interest and enthusiasm about supporting uh, so-called separatists up around uh, Donetsk and Luhansk.
1: Yeah. No. you answer, I was going to ask you about Bakhmut, Ben, because it's something that's not directly germane to the topic today, but it's something I've been wondering about, is that both sides have turned Bakhmut into this really symbolically important piece of territory that, from what I understand, is not that strategically important. And I was wondering if you could address that. You seem to address it from the Ukrainian side. Why do the Russians put so much putting so much stock so, in
0: Bakhmut? Th- this is going to be me speculating a little bit. Okay, I don't I don't know this for a fact. Uh, there is no uh, gigantic uh, geographical reason thing that makes Bakhmut so important. Yes, it, it causes problems for supply lines, but there is actually more defensible terrain a little bit further to the west. Um, and I think, um, I don't know how symbolic it is for Ukraine. I think it's much more about this economy of force mission that we're talking about, that they are holding up Russian forces up there and allowing Russian forces, especially Wagner, to bleed themselves out at high cost to the Ukrainians. But the think of main effort and supporting effort. What's happening in Bakhmut is actually a supporting effort As Ukraine builds up the capability, assembling armored forces with all of their own brigades, uh, what they have captured from the Russians, and what is trickling in from the West, and they're they're training, they are building up their maintenance, they are getting ready for this attack. And this is very traditional. People may not realize units train during the war. Everybody's not in the fight. Units are being prepared for the next mission. And so um, I think that that's what's going on is that the Ukrainians are um, uh, happy to see the Russians bleed themselves out. At some point, they may decide, okay, we can pull back to the next line and let Wagner and them continue to bleed out. Now, why why is the Wagner organization so focused on Bakhmut? I honestly believe that this is part of their financial model, the, the, their money. Their finance in Africa comes from uh, they provide security for country X and country X gives them a diamond mine or a gold mine. Wow. Okay, well of course everybody knows Bakhmut sits on top of massive salt mines um, and also I believe gypsum. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine, I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine that that Putin tells his buddy Prigozhin, "Hey, go ahead, and knock yourself out. You get you get Bakhmut, you can keep the salt mines."
1: No, that's that scants That fits. Because I just, I I think I understand what the Ukrainians are doing, but I just don't understand what the Russians are doing here. Casey, did you have something to add on this? I know you've been following the Well, I, I was going to say, legit. Brian,
2: as you well know, getting in the head of Vladimir Putin is a dark and scary place. And the more we can avoid that, the better off we'll <laughs> yeah. all be. I will say you've got to bring a flashlight. Me. <laughs> no, you are gonna have to bring a few of them because you're gonna be down there for a while. You know, this, this does get into broader political considerations, which I know we'll talk about in the second half of the show. And I will be fascinated in a few decades time when archives are finally opened up to see the kind of back channel conversations that are happening between Putin and Prigozhin. Um, Brian, I think as you've talked about in recent podcasts, Prigozhin has been on kind of the back feet in terms of yep. his intern internecine war with Shoigu and Gerasimov and the uh, the broader Russian military. And I wouldn't be surprised if he sees Bakhmut as this kind of, maybe not a last gasp per se, but It's something that he could put on a platter and bring to Putin and say, look, I'm still your guy. I still can get these resources. I can still get the job done. You shouldn't be listening to the shoigus and grass of the world. But again, this is just speculation because at the end of the day, if the Russians are taking five-to-one losses, maybe even seven-to-one losses against the Ukrainians, it's just staggering. No country, no matter the mass, can keep that up for an extended period of time and certainly not Russia.
1: One thing I want to do, we're going to shift into the politics of, of all this in a minute, but I want to set this up with something just to close out the first section. And this is this, the idea that you bring up in the piece and citing many people, and you alluded to it earlier, that uh, liberating Crimea is not just desirable, it is necessary. Um, because there's a lot of thinking out there that if Ukraine could liberate all of Donbass, then Crimea is a hell of a bargaining chip basically, to end the war. there are vo- Now, I am not among those voices, and I know you two are not also among those voices, but those voices are out there, and they have influence in the halls of power. Um, so, this is, so I wanted to get you both to speak to this issue of the necessity of, of why this is a bad idea, why holding Crimea out there as a bargaining chip in the event of the liberation of the rest of Ukraine to basically get Russia to sue for peace.
2: Well, I was, was going to say, I'll, I'll just, I'll start with this, Brian. I mean, putting aside the fact that we should be upholding the principle that Uh-oh. nuclear powers can't simply invade and carve up non-nuclear powers in the name of revanchist imperialism, putting, putting that pretty major principle <laughs> to the side, you know, what we saw play out last year, obviously, you know, the invasion first began back in 2014, Russian, you know, so-called little green men flooding through the peninsula. And instead of that leading to any kind of stability in Ukraine or in Europe, that simply turned Crimea into that much more of a forward operating base militarily for the Russians. You know, and again, know, Again, we've we've been talking about that plenty already in the conversation, but one of the things General Hodges brought up earlier that I really don't think is getting enough conversation is the utility Crimea has for the Russians to continue this economic blockade of Ukraine. And We're finally starting to have conversations about uh, economic reconstruction in Ukraine, how much that's going to actually cost both the Ukrainians and the West, and if, if Russia is allowed to maintain Crimea, they can effectively hold a noose around Ukraine's neck for as long as they want in terms of the export economy in southern Ukraine.
1: Ukraine. Ben I know you have something to add to that.
0: Well, yeah, everybody, everybody that's listening obviously cares about Ukraine. Um t- look at your map. I mean, Crimea, uh, from where I'm looking at my map now, you can forget the Sea of Azov as long as Russia sits there, and you can forget Odessa and then the entire Black Sea coast as long as Russia sits there. So I think most people would acknowledge that, okay, let's assume, let's assume just for the sake of this discussion. That there was a settlement where uh Ukraine gives in to pressure and they and they say, Okay, fine, keep Crimea, but we want everything else back. And the Russians would say, Hell yes. Uh, they would love that. Because they don't the Russians don't care about Donetsk and Luhansk. That's a sideshow. What they care about is Crimea because it gives them total domination over the entire Black Sea coast of Ukraine. It gives them the ability to completely block any hope that Ukraine has of economic recovery. At the Munich Security Conference two weeks ago, I spoke to a three weeks ago, to a very, very, very that's three various, very, very, very senior executive from one of the top two uh international investment firms. He said there will be no investment in Ukraine. Unless there is an ironclad security guarantee for Ukraine. Well, tell me how you think you have an ironclad security guarantee if Russia occupies Crimea and and Ukraine's ability to export, which is the key to its economy, export grain, rare earth materials, iron ore. It's not going to happen. So um, that's why I think it is um, a nonsense, nonsensical. Proposition to tell Ukrainians, come on, for the sake of peace, let them keep goddamn Crimea, and uh, and then we can all, you know, go home.
1: Yeah, I think part of the problem is we've kind of normalized the fact that they've been there since 2014. We've kind of gotten used to it. It's like been you know nine years now, and and so people are and we we gotta push back against that that sentiment that Crimea is now de facto part of Russia. It is not. It is sovereign Ukrainian territory. Um, yeah, that's somebody a, somebody ahead asked
0: ahead. me a, a few weeks ago, they said, come on, what's the big deal? I mean, the Russians seized Crimea in 2014, <laughs> and Ukraine got on with their economy anyway. I said, what? W- were you asleep? What happened when the uh, Ukrainian Navy attempted to sail up through the Kerch Straits uh, back right. in 2019? Right. What happened? The Russians said, "Oh, they violated territorial water." And uh, even though nobody in the world except Moscow and I think North Korea acknowledged uh, (laughs) Russia's claim to Crimea, and they and they stopped Ukrainian navy vessels exercising freedom of navigation to go up into Sea of Azov, where Russia had already agreed that this is internal water to be shared. So that's why you cannot. They have not earned any credibility that they could be trusted on any
1: agreement. Right. No, and those Ukrainian ships are sailing from a Ukrainian port to a Ukrainian port, I might add. Go ahead, Casey.
2: (laughs) Well, I was going to say, Brian, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of you, you can see where the logic is. You can understand why some of these folks are saying some of these things, you know, however well intentioned it may be. It comes down at the end of the day, just frankly, to a lot of wishful thinking. I would love to be in a world where we could. You know, come to a bargaining table, come to a negotiating table, go back to some kind of status quo ante, whatever that may be, and have stability on the European continent once more. But unfortunately, with a man like Putin in power right now, with the status of Crimea still up in the air, we are not going to have that. You know, this search. This now, frankly, decade-long search for off-ramps for President Putin has been futile. There's no reason
1: to think. He's not interested in off-ramps.
2: Exactly. He's not interested in that. As much as we may be, he is not, and he won't be until he is, frankly, ousted from power, and then he's going to have a whole bunch of other
1: issues that he's going to be facing instead. Well, that's a great way to segue into the second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the changing political consensus around the feasibility and desirability of liberating Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from beautiful Beaufort, South Carolina, is retired. U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37 year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. These days, Ben is a senior advisor at Human Rights First. And joining us from the uber hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Cryptocracy. Casey is also the author of a recently published article in Politico titled Here's How Ukraine Can Retake Crimea, which we will share in the show notes. I'd also like to remind Mind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in if you do. Please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical.
0: Сегодня... 26 лютого ми відзначаємо День спротиву окупації Криму і Севастополя. І саме сьогодні така розмова особливо важлива. Розмова про те, щоб інформаційно та всіма іншими шляхами постійно забезпечувати розуміння, що Україна нікого не покине, нікого не залишить ворога. Всіх своїх і все своє ми повернемо з російської неволі.
1: So until very recently. The idea that Ukraine could liberate Crimea was not taken very seriously in the West. It was seen by many as militarily too difficult and politically too dangerous, given the assumption that Crimea was one of Putin's red lines, in the words of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. So, Casey, what's changed? What's bringing about? Why is this idea suddenly being taken a lot more seriously in the halls of power and among analysts?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and again, that's a, that's a great question. Just how far things have come in a, a year alone. I mean, again, we'll be talking about militarily, the utility of Crimea as this forward operating base for the Russians itself. But I do think over the past year, there has been this kind of broader examination or reexamination of how especially Western um, experts and pundits and prognosticators understand Russian imperialism and understand pieces of Russian propaganda. You know, as I, as I wrote in this piece, when it pertains to Crimea, you know, I do think one of the most pernicious pieces of this Russian propaganda is that there is some kind of Russian entitlement to Crimea. Now, again, the piece goes through plenty of different areas, plenty of different elements and aspects of that. But you know, as we saw, Brian—I mean, you and I have talked about this plenty. You have certainly had plenty of podcasts about this ever since 2014. There's been this kind of almost blase attitude, this kind of nod and wink—you know, what what the Germans would call the the Putin understanders—that yes, Crimea is a little bit different than Ukraine, and yes, the Soviets transferred Crimea in 1954 from the RSFSR to the Ukrainian SSR. And Can not we just kind of wash our hands of this? Should Ukraine actually have any right to Crimea whatsoever? And what we've seen over the past year is a lot more people are a lot more familiar with Crimean history itself. And just to pull one data point, Brian, which I think is really fascinating for me. I think a lot of folks understand that, you know, the Russians first annexed Crimea in 1783 under Catherine the Great. And there's always been this notion that it's eternally Russian and it's this kind of Russian, quote unquote, holy land. You know, Crimea wasn't majority ethnic Russian until the Second World War. (laughs) And again, that's only because of Stalin's gargantuan Uh, ethnic ethnic cleansing cleansing. campaign. I'm glad you raised that because
1: I was going to raise it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's just one of these things. If, If you're not familiar with regional history, if you're not familiar with the history of Russian imperialism, yeah, it's easy to say, sure, it's always been Russian. Sure, it's majority Russian. Just let them have it without actually understanding the actual history that it didn't become even majority Russian, this supposed holy land, uh, until you know less, less than a century ago, just two generations ago, uh, because of gargantuan ethnic cleansing campaigns.
1: Ben, you talk to a lot of people about this issue, in in, 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 in the military and the political world, what do you, what do you how do you, do you see the consensus changing to the extent that Casey does, and, and if so, what is driving this change?
0: Well, I think. Um... The administration um, is uh, gradually getting closer and closer to the realization that we have to have a strategic outcome. That you know, to say uh, we're with you for as long as it takes is an absolutely worthless, meaningless, empty phrase. Uh, for as long as what takes? I mean, that's that only guarantees uh, a longer war, more people dying, and and the chance of Russia. Um, winning the test of will as time goes by. So um, I think the administration realizes that we we have to we have to get to a conclusion that um is is more decisive. That that's part of it. But I have spoken with um let's just say really good, really smart, very senior people from the Pentagon and the um including the joint staff and in the department and they're like well, Crimea is not that important for logistics for the Donbass region. It's like, no, that's not the point. You know, it, it's it's not about does it provide great logistics for Russian troops sitting across the Dnepro from Kherson. It's because of what it gives the Russians if they hang on to it. And so, you know, a lot of good people have been pounding away at, you know, we have uh, uh, not intentionally, but in effect, granted sanctuary. To Russia in places like Crimea by withholding longer-range weapons that the Ukrainians could be using against Crimea. So in effect, Crimea is sanctuary for Russian forces. I think one thing that's uh, a couple of things that have helped also, though, is that Russia um, is their is their own worst enemy here. I mean, there are a lot of people that would be happy to give them an excuse or just to stop this. To try to explain away what Russians are doing, but their behavior—I mean, how many how many uh, missiles did they launch against Ukrainian cities last night? Yeah. And so this behavior is become so for even for some of the uh, Kremlin stares uh, that uh, Casey uh, alluded to, which Casey alluded, it's like you can't defend that. And right. so um, so people, I think I think there is a buildup inside the European Union and inside other countries, a hardening inside the US Congress, by the Mm -hmm. way, um, that this is not acceptable and that Russia is not in any way reliable and and we need to take care of this. And then finally, these red lines, why do we determine what Russian red lines are? Okay, I think actually there's a bigger chance of you using a nuclear weapon than there is of Russia using a nuclear weapon. Yes, of course you take it serious. They have thousands of nuclear warheads. They don't care how, how many innocent people get killed. But a tactical nuclear weapon gives them zero advantage, zero battlefield advantage. They don't have the Russian or like the old Soviet Union trained, properly equipped units that could exploit a a gap that would have been created by use of a tactical weapon where they were trained to operate in a contaminated or radioactive environment. They don't have that anymore. So there's no advantage. There's only downsides. And I think the general staff recognizes and they also believe President Biden's warning of catastrophic consequences. So if there's no advantage, and there's only downsides, why would you do it? And I also think, finally, uh, Putin is, you know, he's probably the biggest narcissist in the world. I and mean, this is a guy that sits 10 meters away from his uh, office, office visitors to, to avoid getting COVID. You know, and he's got this incredible personal lifestyle that's finally being exposed that doesn't sound like a guy's willing to blow it all up and uh, kill himself
1: yeah no I, I i agree with you on that on, on that piece i think partially and you jumped into something i wanted to kind of close us out with and this is what i call fear of victory but i wanted to before we go to that i wanted to get uh, both of you to weigh in on the, the one of the things that I think is really driving the change in the consensus. Part of it is the, is the Russian brutality. Um, part of it is the busting of these myths about what Crimea is and who it has always belonged to. But another is the performance of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, because one of the things, one of the assumptions why people thought retaking Crimea was a ridiculous idea in the beginning of the war is that it was just too militarily difficult. The Ukrainians couldn't do it. And now we're getting to like, you know, is there anything the Ukrainians can't do? (laughs) I I mean, I, Ben, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe I've heard you argue that actually taking Crimea militarily would be easier than taking Donbass. Am am I correct in that assumption? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. If you're thinking in a very linear fashion. Then it's like, oh, this will be very hard. And I've seen people say, "Come on, they've had it for, you know, what is it since 2014? So that's uh, nine years. It's a, it's an incredible fortress." Bullshit! It's not an incredible fortress. You've got thousands of Russians go there for their summer holiday. Um, you know, this is this is a place that they think they have sanctuary, and. Uh, you don't have to kill every Russian. You just got to make sure that the Russian Navy cannot sail out of Sevastopol, that the Russian Air Force cannot fly out of Saki, and, and the other things uh, or uh, assets can't be used. And and so if, if you think linearly like this is 1917, yes, it will be a disaster.
2: General Hodges, one of the things you and I talked about a few weeks ago was this notion that, again, this myth that Crimea is a supposed holy land or spiritual center of the Russian nation itself. And yet what we have already seen, Brian, to your point, the efficacy of the Ukrainian military or paramilitary groups, whatever they may be, attacking Saki Air Base, bombing the Kerch Strait Bridge, so on and so forth, You know, we didn't see any great rallying to the cause out of Russia. What we saw was hundreds of thousands of Russians leaving. We saw 10,000 or 30,000 traffic uh, uh, pile up trying to leave the peninsula, right? We didn't see this great central rallying cause. It didn't become, as certain others have argued, the Pearl Harbor of Russia itself. Again, one more myth uh, among many that have been punctured over just the last few months.
1: Yeah, no, this is true. And this is, I think, this more than anything. Has driven the change in the narrative that the 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 efficacy of the Ukrainian armed forces has said, huh, we can win. They could win this thing, and winning this thing means taking Crimea. Now, the last thing I wanted to to do, and I know this is going to trigger you, Ben, because it drives you crazy as crazy as it drives me. Uh, what I call fear of victory. Um, let's imagine. That military scenario that you laid out in the first half of the podcast so, so, so eloquently, kind of taking out the Kerch the Bridge, um, a drive to- towards Melitopol, um, cutting, isolating Crimea, and then attacking it with long-range artillery. Let's imagine the Ukrainians have the attackums and the F-16s and everything they need. Um, there are those that are going to argue that that would cause Putin to go ballistic. Right. And you already addressed the, 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 nu- the nuclear peace. Um, now, I don't buy this. Um, and our mutual friend Maria Snegavaya and I have written an article uh, for foreign policy showing that actually, when Putin faces defeat and overwhelming force, he backs down. He backs down. Sometimes a cornered rat's just a cornered rat, to use his favorite metaphor, right? But Ben, could you speak to this fear of victory and what it is going to take? Because this is what I – I think people – there's a lot of people in policymaking circles that are afraid of winning this war because of what Putin might do. And I think we really have to overcome this. Even people like the, you know, the new Czech president recently said we have to give Putin off-ramps. We can't, we can't, we can't have a victory that results in the humiliation of Russia. Macron saying this all the time. Um, what, what is it going to take to change this? And do you see it changing?
0: Yeah, um, I do not understand. And I was disappointed that uh, President Pavel uh, would have said something like that. That he. Um, of course, these are all political leaders. They all have to, they have different audiences, and they have to do things. But um, let's flip flip this and say, okay, so what happens if we if we do stop short, if if because of the concern that they that Putin might go crazy, he might he might use nuclear weapons, might blow it up. I mean, I hear this nonsense all the time. But let's assume that uh, we stop short so that he doesn't do all that. What what do we take away from this? Well, first of all, everybody in the world will want a nuclear weapon now because they'll see all you got to do is threaten it and the United States will back down. So in other words, we have we have made we have given in to nuclear blackmail and the Kremlin knows this when they hear the president say no World War Three, you know, no escalation. OK, that's I mean, this is tea T-ball for them. Uh, to just say, okay, well, there's going to be a gigantic nuke and thousands of Americans are going to be killed in a war. And so people start tapping the brakes. And uh, this is where we need to decide what do we want this to look like when this is all said and done. And I think we should stop deterring ourselves. The president can do this. The secretary of defense can do this. And I think if the U.S. provides that real solid leadership, then... um, nations will will stand stand with us look the people that are going to be in most danger of a nuclear weapon is not us it's ukraine exactly because you know you've got two types of nukes you have the strategic the dr strangelove icbm they're all aiming where you guys live okay they're not going to use that because of what the consequences will be the strategic retaliation by us so they use a tactical nuclear weapon a tactical nuclear weapon, you could you could use it on one end of the uh, runway uh, of Atlanta Hartsfield Airport or Dulles, and you would not blow out the glass on the terminals on the other end. I mean, this is not a, a it's not a Hiroshima type weapon, so there's no battlefield advantage. But so if they do use it, who's it? Who's going to be at most risk? It's going to be Ukrainians and Russians. Why do we? Why do we uh, allow ourselves to be deterred by that when the Ukrainians say,
1: Bring it on? Right. Right. Yeah. No, the 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 one the, the Ukrainians are the one people who are not worried about this and they're the they're they the ones that have the most to lose. One thing I always bring up too is like Ben, you like me, we we grew up in the Cold War and we we lived, it was just part of life that 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 there was the the possibility of nuclear war, and we've had this one generation now that's grown up without this. And I don't know. It just nev- it, it, it doesn't freak me out that much, I guess, because I grew up with it and it it, it 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 never happened. Casey, do you have anything you wanted to add? Here? Well,
2: well, I was, I was going to say, you know, as part of the generation that grew up without it now are you know, for the first time experiencing this. Yes, it's it's a, a shift of trajectory. You, know, you get accustomed to it. I think, Brian, as you mentioned in the, in the podcast episode last week, though, as we saw in that recent Financial Times piece, Putin, to his extremely limited credit, had considered, had outlined the potentiality of using nuclear weapons and mm-hmm. decided against it. Um, I wanted to say, maybe just as we kind of get toward wrapping the podcast up, you know, one of the things that you just mentioned, Brian, a moment ago was – I think it was Macron's comment about not humiliating Russia. Right. And yes, in a very vague, theoretical way, you can understand where he's coming from, but certainly one of the clear lessons from this war for me is… You can't control what your enemy, your adversary, or another entity is going to view as humiliating, as, as Brian is, you know, and, and General Hodges, you guys are both perfectly aware. You know, the U.S. did plenty and much of what it could to retain the Soviet Union as it existed in the late 80s, early 90s under Bush 1. Um, You know, It allowed Russia to retain its seat on Security Council. Over and again, the U.S. provided – the West provided a pedestal for a kind of soft landing for the Russians. And yet we saw the humiliating, humiliation. We saw the resentment creep in over and again, and is now obviously propelling President Putin. Putin himself, I think we have to get past this idea that we can control what others, especially those in the the Kremlin, are going to view as humiliating and simply act and work toward what is in our best strategic interest in Ukraine and elsewhere.
1: Exactly. Well said. That is
0: very well said. Look, um, we should not be scared of the potential breakup of the Russian Federation. It won't be pretty, but we shouldn't be scared of that. And when I hear people say, well, we don't know who the guy after Putin might be worse. I doubt it. I, I doubt I mean anybody will be markedly worse than him. So we need to uh, demonstrate, we need to uh, clarify what is our strategic objective. That's the hardest thing in the world for political leaders to do, is to provide clarity about a strategic outcome that they want with real clarity. Now that's that's got to be job one for the administration now.
1: I mean, I got an easy answer to that. A Ukraine that's whole and free and embedded in Western institutions, full stop.
2: But but they
1: don't. don't, No, I think they see it. I think they're afraid of it. I mean, I'm saying they don't say
0: if they said that, if they said, we want Ukraine to win, then you would not be having these trial balloons being released uh, about once a week about negotiations from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or from other people in the administration.
1: Yeah, no, I think, uh, go, go ahead, Casey.
2: Well, I was going to say, and you know who said that explicitly, very clearly the other day that Ukraine needs to be restored to its 1991 borders was Alexei Navalny. You know, he has had issues with what should happen to Crimea, but he's finally come out and said, no, full stop, 1991 borders, that includes Crimea, that's what needs to happen moving forward.
1: No, and I I would argue that that should be uh, non-negotiable, and that's a. I, I'm watching the time, and I'm aware of both of your schedules, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up now because that's what we all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you you have been listening to the Power Circle podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the e. McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from beautiful beautiful South Carolina has been retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, a 37-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces and the former commander of U.S. Army Europe. These days, Ben serves as senior advisor at Human Rights First. And joining us from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy. Casey's also the author of the recently published article in Politico, Here's How Ukraine could Retake Crimea, which we will certainly share in the show notes. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a whole lot smarter. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, as Casey departs, I'd like to also thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Leagues is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled and in working order throughout our discussion and Zachary Bell handles our all important post-production duties cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Cloud and TuneIn. If you do please leave us a big fat five star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you And for now, follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will take a one-week hiatus next week because, well, it's spring break at UTA and my producers need a break from me. But we'll be back in action on March 24th. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production.